Hi, this is Isaac Arthur. Welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash Isaac Arthur and use my code Isaac Arthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the SFIA monthly livestream Q&A. We'll get started in just a moment, but go ahead and start getting your questions in the chat window so our moderators can start relaying those to me as soon as we start. Please try to keep the questions concise and watch your spelling, and try to be polite to others in the chat. We usually go for about an hour so you probably want to grab a drink and a snack, though we'll take a break about halfway through too. With all that said, welcome and let's get started. Good afternoon everybody and welcome to our live stream for March 2022. We're going to start taking your questions in just a moment, but as usual, we'll be going to have your questions submitted to our moderators in the chat. They'll go through and find questions and they'll post them over to my lovely assistant and wife, Sarah, who will be reading them for today. And she's going to go ahead and start us off with a question. Well, yes. So our first question today is from Spaceman and he wants to know if you think that magnetic monopoles are real. Okay, so for some context, a magnetic monopole is the idea that normally you have a magnet that's got a dipole, a north and a south side, and the idea is if you cut a magnet in half, like a little ball magnet, if I just cut that in half, there's still a new north side and south side, you get two of them. A little bit like quarks, right? You cut two quarks in half, you get two more quarks, so you get four quarks. You never get one isolation. There's been a lot of theories you could have magnetic monopoles, and that's of a lot of interest to us from a theoretical standpoint, as well as from a megastructural standpoint, because if they all real, then we can make something called mag matter, which is essentially atoms made of magnetic monopoles, and the bonds between them would be the difference between like graphene, really strong, and tissue paper. Mag matter would be that much stronger and then some. So we could build things like a Niven ring wall, which could build things where you could spend an entire planet from a string as thick as your finger, if you get something to spend that planet over. So it is of interest to us, I'd love for them to turn out to be real, but I'm not going to hold my breath. I'd say probably not. Very good. We have a question here from Suzuku455. Um, actually, he's asking, Rob, Space Alien Bats asks you on behalf of NASA, where to send a probe anywhere in space that is capable of sending back real-time data? Where would you send it to? If I could send a probe anywhere in space with real-time data, I'm going to assume for the moment we... Uh, could ignore, you know, the speed limit, no, no light lag or anything either. Um, hmm. Oh my, that, that's the very much an exoplanet question. I, I, I would honestly say probably somewhere near the Orion Nebula, in the sense that there's so much stars packed in there, but not so in, incredibly dense that we might actually have a chance in, of actually picking up signals from civilizations there because there's a, a good deal of density there, but not that point where you're living there, you'd just be sterilized by supernova, but honestly, any yellow star that is over 5 billion years old is a good pick. So. Alright, the next one up is a super chat from Dara Cloak, thank you. Hi Sarah and Isaac. My question this month is, do you think dead civilizations is a good solution to the Fermi Paradox? It's a good solution, it's actually an excellent solution, I just don't think it's very likely to turn out to be true. Um, the original concept of the Fermi Paradox, which again didn't get named until the 70s, uh, and was kind of credited to, to Enrico Fermi afterwards, he had just assumed that there was no way you would ever contact alien civilizations because they wouldn't last very long with nuclear bombs being around, and he helped invent the H-bomb, so he's a little bit pessimistic about our uses of it, 
and that it wouldn't really be possible to ever build a spaceship. And we hadn't even landed on the moon yet at that time. So let alone got to another planet, let alone went around another stall, let alone colonized it. So his basic notion was, even if civilizations are pretty lucky, they're probably going to blow themselves up in a few thousand years, and they would never have had a chance to colonize a system after that. That's a really popular notion for the Fermi Paradox during the Cold War. I've always thought it was incredibly pessimistic, but it does work. If you assume the natural end of most civilizations is to blow themselves up uh, before they colonize a lot of space, or that they even do, but those civilizations tend to blow themselves up too. So if they do get a colony or two out there, those blow themselves up before they have a chance to reseed the galaxy again. That solution works fine. I just think it's one of those ones where it's so pessimistic that if it's true, I'd almost prefer to ignore it as an option. But at the same time, I don't actually think it's very likely to be true either. I don't really see a lot of evidence of us blowing ourselves up in a way that is permanently fatal. You just don't build... Nukes are expensive, right? Nukes are incredibly expensive. To build enough to truly wipe civilization from out forever, we need way, way, way more than we ever had during the Cold War. You know, it's not even close. And you'd wreck your budget just trying to build those to no gain. Budget. I'm not sure they'd have a budget at that point in time. You wouldn't <laughs> yeah. need one. Um, Geek wants to know if you think that the UAP may turn out to be our doom. Um, you know, uh, UAPs or uh, UAPs, UFOs, take your pick what you want to call them. I don't tend to think that these represent any sort of actual hostile presence to Earth. Indeed, when I assume that they are real at all, and I am a skeptic about the sightings on these things, uh, for the most part, you say, well, it's probably terrestrial spacecraft, right? And you say, well, whose is it? Which military could it be? I say, well, it's, it's probably ours, right? Uh, people who are not in the military tend to assume that all the military talks to each other and things like that. But most folks I know who, who have military background who think that the UAP signs by the Navy, for instance, are real, tend to assume that the, the it could even be other Navy aircraft. There was no communication between departments on things like that. And they don't go around bragging to each other about what their coolest new toys are because people talk. You know, um, and so if they are real, they're most likely our own things being caught on tape by our own crews. But if they're not, and I tend to think they are not from Earth, if they are not from Earth, as I would tend to assume is not the case, if they are alien, then they can't really be that hostile, right? Because again, if you can build interstellar spacecraft, blowing up a whole planet, not a big issue in terms of like beating them, blowing them up, etc. So probably not hostile if they're not from Earth, and they are from Earth. Probably not a threat to humanity in general, except in an existential kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jacob says, what factors impose an upper limit or a practical upper limit to the size of spacecraft, since they don't need to fit under bridges or into ports like cars or boats? Is it just the material yield strength? <clears throat> hmm. I mean, there is no... We've, we have a ship called... Uh, well, we have an episode called Planet Ships, and it's, it's, it's like a lot of our titles uh, that sounds like clickbait, and it isn't. Like colonizing the sun, that's exactly what we discussed there. Uh, you can build spaceships of almost any size. You try to do interstellar colonization, you might use a planet. You might use an entire star system. However, um, when you're not dealing with atmospheric craft, you still do have size limitations. We talk about using like laser sailcraft between stars, and um, you have to run into all that stuff in the middle, right? Space isn't that empty. And the rate at which you hit stuff and the amount of energy it pulls off you goes with the cube of your own velocity. So you go 10 times faster, you're getting a thousand times as much drag force on yourself. The space between us and the nearest solar system is thin, but it ain't completely empty. And again, we have very empty spaces above our atmosphere where we orbit stuff at that incredibly insanely thin in terms of air. It still drags stuff out of orbit eventually. And that stuff is going 
a hundredth the speed that we'd like to be able to actually send a no-stellar ship. We're thus getting a millionth of the drag. So yes, you don't want to just build ships arbitrarily big, just because you can. Streamlining does actually matter for them, but from a practical standpoint, you know, once you're 10 kilometers wide, that, you know, that, that, that kind of that limit of what you could do with steel and tensile strength, and where you honestly are pushing what you probably should from engineering standpoints for other materials with better tensile strength. So there's really no reason to go wider than that. You go wide with rotating sections because you want to produce that slowest spin possible to create a habitat. There's no reason to go wider with anything that's not spinning. So I'd say that's probably about it. 10 kilometers wide and very rarely for a spaceship which you want to go more than 10 times that backwards. So probably 10 kilometers wide and 100 kilometers long is about your maximum that you'd ever really do for an arc ship or anything else in a stellar. You know, planet there'd be no point. The Imperial Legalist wants <clears throat> to know if in the near future, how might the growth of the space economy feed into current trends, such as the growth of the surveillance state, growing synergy of state and corporation, etc.? Um, I would, uh, in a, in, we just had the, uh, the times pass by for an awful lot of the doomsday movies when I was a kid, like Blade Runner, which is set in LA in, in 2019. And uh, I know the joke with, uh, with Blade Runner is that uh, it's very accurate because it shows LA in the distant future as a smog covered city full of corporate logos. Uh, having just come from LA recently, I'd say that that is not an unfair assessment. <laughs> but, um, you know, the cyberpunk genre has built out the idea that corporations and governments become the same thing. Um, you can assume that if you want that to be the case, but the idea that that's a new trend is not really the case. As long as we've had large governmental business bodies, merchant guilds, etc., like that, the, like the Hanseatic League, right? They've been very intertwined with the governments and vice versa. There are big organizations with lots of power, influence, and people. They're always going to be involved in governments. Um, and that's true for a lot of the other trends, too. Surveillance state is more what people do with the data, right? There's already enough data out there available that if we're actually any good at assembling it, and we're talking about stuff that you couldn't really stop people from getting anyway because they freely put up on their own Facebook page, right? No one divulges more of your private details than yourself and your friends and family about you on Facebook. <laughs> and, and um, you know, that's, that's just a matter of compiling that into something useful, but in the past I could do that too. There's, there was no easy electronic way of compiling it. Privacy for things like this has more to do with how you model how people use the data that does what the actual data and your ability to, to calculate what that data really is, in my opinion. Obviously, I would be as worried about that as anybody else when it comes to privacy. That's going to be one of those constant concerns. And in my opinion, the best way that you deal with problems like that, and same for problems of greater corporate influence, for instance, is just to keep actively involved and watchdogging things like this, you know? And I don't know that the technology itself is any other than the newest newest version, newest fad, version of how you go about doing this stuff. It's that personal vigilance thing that really matters. All right. Pablo Enrique Brazil <clears throat> says, thank you so much for all the content you and your team have produced. You guys are amazing. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, actually. It's... Isaac Bordeaux, do you think you will ever write a book? Um, jeez. You know, two days ago, I started the script up on a redo of our original Episode Zero Megastructures summary version called uh, Megastructures Compendium. And by the second paragraph, just when I was pasting in all the various entries, because as I do as an alphabetical listing, I realized that I was going to be busy working on the longest episode we've ever done. Um, <clears throat> in any given year, we turn out somewhere in the vicinity of a quarter million words of script. Right. That's 
longer than anything other than like you know Winds of Winter or you know really long fancy doorstop or novels. Uh, those could easily be compiled into an essay, and usually we shade a lot of text out that to make it briefer. And in which case you'd have a book right there. This is the format I like to put in. Am I gonna do a book someday? It seems like I almost a guarantee at some point we would do one. Whether that would be fiction or nonfiction, I don't know. Uh, probably nonfiction would be the first one I want to try on something like that. But at the same time, and the number one candidate that would be a Formy Paradox Compendium we do. But uh, I, you know, I like this format. I like the scripted episodes with the visual overlay and narration that we do. That's kind of my genre. I'm, it's good to try new things, but I don't really see that as that's not my high priority. Do you think books of the future are going to look like videos of today? I don't think so, no. Um, you know, there's a good question on that one. Uh, who is that from? Me. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, video Killed the Radio Star was a song that came out when I was a kid. Uh, I don't actually saw the video for it until I was much older. It's a weird video, but a lot of the ones the early 80s on MTV were really weird videos. Um, but, you know, radio is still around. It actually has a bigger audience than it ever used to. Uh, just because there's more of us consuming it. It's market shares down, but there's more of it. I don't know if we're actually doing as many printed books as we were when I was a kid, but I remember in the 90s, somebody said we were now at places like Barnes & Noble selling more books than at any point in history, per capita, right? Not just in terms of quantity. All the while, you had more TV channels than ever. You had thousands of TV channels by then, you know, and now I don't even probably count channels anymore, right? Millions, probably. Um, more does not necessarily mean the end of other things. It means a lot of times there's a saturation in the market, it shifts around, it varies, you know, but... You know, I love audiobooks, not because the books are bad. I got a ton of books sitting right over there on the shelf, but I tend to do audiobooks. Uh, you usually pour written books. Um, you being my wife in this case, I'm pointing out over, over there. <laughs> so, um, she's sitting behind the main camera I'm looking at, so I tend to look at her, which makes me look at the camera, so I'm not staring out in this face like this when I answer questions. Uh -huh. um, and other people like the video format. And I say, if you like to watch the History Channel, or listen to a history audiobook, or read a history book, that's just a preference of format, and some of them are much better than others for presenting style. I don't think any of them are going to go away. So Protein wants to know, in a society with mind upload, is there any way to prevent mass duplication and abuse of uploaded minds? Yeah, yeah. well, it's the same way you, you prevent any else like that. In a world of mass duplication of people out in the rural areas uh, back in the day, Sherlock Holmes, Conan O'Doyle, the writer of Sherlock Holmes, who the character of Sherlock Holmes, expressed a terror of the idea of what kind of crimes would go off out in the rural areas where you couldn't see things, whereas in cities you could hear somebody scream and, and you know, if someone would come and investigate. Uh, I think it was probably a slightly different era at that time. Uh, but, you know, people have always worried about what kind of horrible things people might be doing out of sight, out of mind. If you can just duplicate people on a hull drive, but I think it's a bit of a mistake to assume that, you know, it's just some little chip that you'd be having that would have someone's personality running on it. Um, even in the case like the Landau limit, trying to run a human brain is going to leave a, 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 an infrared signature as you will. You're going to have a power bill that indicates you're running something that big. Uh, you're going to have a, a heat signature that says you're running something that big. And people are going to start noticing. Plus, there's still a amount of calculation involved kind of lets you see on that. So I guess it kind of comes down to what sort of systems we're allowing. And again, this is one of the opposite sides of a privacy issue is we permit an awful lot of privacy invasion, right? in order to make sure that other crimes do not happen. So after these is weighing one in you know one harm against another, that's the thing we'll start to worry about in the future too. Uh, if we can store people and run people on a little disk that size, then we probably have to discuss whether or not we'd be okay with whatever degree of privacy invasion was deemed necessary to 
minimize people basically taking a you know, their ex-spouse they didn't want to break up with and running a simulation of them over and over again. Or somebody who offended them one time, they got a copy of the brain on via scanner and running a simulation of them over and over again just to torment them. Um, and that's that's those ethical issues that people are going to have to deal with down the road when they actually have a little bit more that familiar with the technology, right? We are good to talk about a lot of these problems in advance, but a lot of times, until we see how the actual landscape develops, we can kind of only take loose stabs at it. It's like we used to have with uh, the image that robots in the future will be like the robot butler that looked like a human. It always raised that slavery issue that came so much. Well, now we see the robot butler around the house as your room by it runs around the floor, and other than getting in fights with your dog or cat, it really doesn't have much of a personality. We're not really worried if we're enslaving this creature, right? Um, a lot of what we thought was our concern about smart manufacturing came from us misunderstanding the idea that most things we need robots to do are insanely stupid easy compared to the human mind. And so we didn't need to replicate the human mind for that thus far. That's the same kind of thing that's going to apply to a lot of technological dilemmas where we want to be mindful of them and thinking about them in advance, but we can wait to make any full decisions or worry about them too much until that has actually gotten closer and we see what that landscape really might look like. All right. So Ed Welsh says, in the event of an extraterrestrial invasion, would we stand more of a chance of survival with a unified global government or a collection of rival nations that come together for one specific purpose? Um, you're going to lose. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I'm never quite sure how to put this into kind of a context here. Um, if you are an absolute firm believer that, that, you know, in atheism, you would still have a better statistical odds in your mind of dropping to your knees and praying than doing any other activity you could think of if hostile aliens invade with the intent of killing us all, right? You have no chance against that. Your chance against that is exactly the same as an ant colony surviving when it's trapped inside a box and there's a guy with an exterminator there with some poison who knows what he's doing. You will lose. Doesn't matter what you do, you're going to lose, right? Uh, whether you join over into a unified government or break into a million little sub-bands, the only reason it might matter is if their intent is not to wipe you guys out or completely dominate you. They're going to outthink you, right? They're going to beat you strategically. It's not just that they outnumber you. It's not just they have better guns than you. It's that they know how to fight better. They know how to do these things better. So in terms of human civilization surviving, your best odds probably would not be unified because then you'd have various governments who hadn't been too actively involved in the conflict if they weren't planning to kill us off who they might spare because they weren't particularly malicious, or because those guys hadn't fought them and surrendered, or they admired one group over another, it gives you a divorce of options, right? In which case, the idea being, well, let's all band together against the alien you know, menace. That's a nice idea, but from a practical standpoint, you almost would be better off you know, breaking into a bunch of little disparate groups and trying to fight that way, because then you might actually be able to not all have the same fate. And, you know, it's not the nicest concept in the world, but if you're going up against an enemy that wants you dead, outnumbers you, outguns you, and outthinks you, you know, you, you need to find a way for them to not want you dead. Because that's the way you win. That's the only way that you win at all. Marbet says, Isaac, what you got going into the greenhouse this year? <laughs> and at this moment, we all begin laughing and queuing the snow. Yeah. It is snowing now. So actually, I don't know if it's snowing outside at the moment. It was snowy earlier. We went to... Go take photographs of covered bridges with snow on them. Nothing's going in the greenhouse this year because the greenhouse <clears> is seeing. That's the wind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The greenhouse is currently seeing disassembled in my garage. 
twice. <laughs> because we had a very windy year that blew it down. When we moved, we have a much more wind-hit area. So the greenhouse needs to be rebuilt uh, with greater wind pressure in mind. So probably it will be built out of big 2 by 4s and concrete as opposed to <laughs> the previous version. Then we'll come fall, I'll figure out what I'm putting actually in it. But for this year, probably just some cord frames and we're planning an orchard... Uh, well, whenever those actually ship in, so. Oh, whenever it stops snowing long enough for the uh, ground to warm up. Yeah, know. that too. We still have a Christmas tree inside the house. It's sitting upstairs above my head, by the way. Um, we uh, got a live tree. That thing weighs like 100 pounds. It's only four foot tall. Oh, I thought it was 150. It, well, I think you're right. It probably was 150. It's gotten bigger, too, since then. So. <laughs> um, I've been watering it the whole time, and... You know, we decided we didn't want to just throw... It's, it's alive. It's got a root ball, right? So we're going to plant it, but we don't want to take it out to get, like, snow shock. So sitting in the living room right now, just getting bigger. bigger. And, just, bigger, yeah, bigger. and bigger. Uh -huh. I and, think it's grown six inches since we brought it in. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> All the way around and up. <laughs> so, and, and this is the, the idea that if your wife says, hey, I'd like to try a live tree. Say um, yes. Say no. Say yes. <laughs> so, I think I'm going to deck that thing out with, like, solo Christmas lights and leave it by the road just so I could see it every day. I just got to take my Christmas lights down, like, three days ago, too, so, yeah. <laughs> Scooter GSP says, what would you consider the top three rules for individuals wishing to do good world building for a sci-fi or fantasy setting? Can you give me that question again? Because I just had Santa Claus pop in my head for some reason. Would that be rule number one? It could be, but I don't know what the question was. <laughs> the question was, what would you consider to be the top three rules for individuals wishing to do good world building for a sci-fi or fantasy setting? Mm -hmm. uh, rule one, do your research, right? Um, two, for realism's sake, and kind of going on one there, go ahead and pick one or two areas of real human knowledge. It doesn't have to be a science, by the way. It could be, or it could be a social science, for instance, as opposed to hard science, but it could also just be like, an area of human history, which is very nice for fantasy, for instance. Um, and have that as your main focus, something you actually have knowledge about and done the research on. Because it's not that people expect every little bit to be realistic, it's they expect the bits that you dive into to be right or feel right. And then for Law 3, I'd actually say Brandon Sanderson's laws on these things, uh, which I think is more than one, but the key one on that one is essentially uh, if your goal is to avoid deus ex machina in the story, because people often find that very you know, unsatisfying, what you're really trying to do is predict all the strange ways in which this new technology, this new concept, whatever it is that you have, that's fantastic in the in the book series. That's science fiction. It's not something that we have good data on or isn't real at all. Try to predict the cool ways that can be used and 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 exploited as opposed to like just the first level of it. That's what people enjoy. They want a complex system where the rules actually mean something. So they learn, you know, they got this idea in their head. Then fans get horribly set when someone comes right back by is like, oh yeah, nobody ever thought to do this strange thing before, but now it wrecks the system. Um, for example, for those of you who are less familiar with the stuff, if you've seen the movie Last Jedi, it's not really that surprising that someone rammed a spaceship uh, at hyperspeeds. What's surprising is that they have had that technology for 10,000 years, and it was a surprise that somebody did that for the first time ever, is the impression. Or if it isn't, then why they would actually ever build the ships that size that were vulnerable to that, you know? Um, and that, that was kind of thing that was game-breaking about that. So when it comes to realism and science fiction and war building, do your research. Pick a few areas to really focus on, one or two that are like the ones that you're really trying to add that level of realism to, right? Uh, and then three, 
always trying to think about the consequences of anything you're bringing in that changes the system. It doesn't just have to be technology, too, by the way. It could be a, a different, like, aspect of human behavior, you know? Uh, like, if you are just, uh, well, we'll skip individual examples of playing in science and fiction for that, but if you're changing something fundamental about human behavior with an alien species, try to think of how that plays out. You can make mistakes on that, too, but people appreciate the level of depth you go into. And then if you actually get published... Talk to your fans, right? They're going to find so many cool suggestions for how to use that. It's going to save you problems down the road for trying to fix that. So, All right. Walsh0311, do you think that military sci-fi can motivate more veterans to pursue STEM careers? That's a good question. Um, you know, in my unit in the Army, uh, it was like Geek Central. Um, probably the most popular piece of science fiction uh, that was probably going around, at least in terms of people stealing my, my personal books or borrowing them indefinitely, because I, I did loan them out. Uh, but at that time, when you won't have a 40K, was really popular. But Star Wars would be the next one. And this would be old legend, Star Wars. The good one. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, that was very popular, too. But military sci-fi, really popular in the military. Uh, but just sci-fi in general tends to be pretty popular with that demographic, I'd say. Um, does it motivate more than going to STEM careers? I mean, I'm, I'm going off the list in my head of the people who I know who are really into it, uh, and two of them, just in my friend circle, maybe a dozen people, two of them went into engineering, one doing the science, but the others went into the other, any number of other things, like my best friend, Big Geek, uh, and he's a history major. No, a history teacher, I should say. History major a decade ago. <laughs> Getting old. So <laughs> it varies a lot, but... Although, you know, again when it comes to the military and people who tend to be fond of it, I would say that you have a lot of folks who tend to actually like science fiction, but history too. And that's like the whole fantasy genre is very popular too, but history is, uh, well, another one of those really geeky fields too, but definitely popular in the military too. So, um, does science fiction motivate people to go into STEM in general is the better question. Uh, and, uh, whether it's military or not, I'd say the answer is absolutely yes. Yeah, absolutely. Or do you just find that people who are interested in STEM also tend to be interested in science fiction? Well, yeah, I mean, it is, it's like a lot of feedback cycles, right? You, you, people who are very interested in science tend to be very interested in sci-fi. Uh, I do know some people who, who are very sciencey, but you, they wouldn't even recognize Captain Cook if they saw him. Uh, maybe because they were looking at Order William Shadow or something like that, but it's not that unheard of. But, you know, every area's got its area of geekiness to some degree, too. It's not just like STEM, you know? All right. The next question here is from Colette Fisk. Do you think that it will become economically attractive to start mining asteroids? And if yes, how far into the future? Hmm. Um, I mean, it could even be 10 years. I, I, I don't really expect asteroid mining to be a big thing a decade from now, but I really would not be surprised if the first official asteroid mining incident took place in this upcoming decade. Um, that said, um, I have... Two big Kickstarters I'm fond of for science, you know, for space in general. I don't know if either one will be the one that really gets things rolling, but you know, there's a an escalating downhill on things like this. Every new thing you get in space makes it a little bit cheaper to do more, a little bit more likely to do more things there. But you get that one big that thing that caused like your 1849 gold rush kind of thing for development, or that uh, you know, there's a lot of things historically that caused a big boom to an area, uh, either economic sector wise or in terms of actual geography. And the two that I tend to be thinking most would be the case for space. And again, sometimes development doesn't require any of these kind of big Kickstarters. There's no big snowball effect from one object. But if there was one that it turns out to be for space, I think it would either be uh, power beaming with solar power satellites. 
because that's a trillion dollar sector down here on Earth, right? Uh, or uh, asteroid mining, because again, gold's worth a lot of money and people like gold, platinum. All right, uh, coming up here on a couple questions. Reverend RV, should orbital resonance be added as a great filter? The need for planetary resonance to keep us in the habitable zone, and the need for a Saturn to keep Jupiter from bulldozing its way into the sun. Yeah, I'm trying to think of who I was actually talking about with this recently, and it actually might have been David Kipping from Cool Wards. Um, <sighs> or who was it? Someone I was talking with recently and was discussing the, the idea that Jupiter's migration in the solar system in the early days might actually have cleared out all the super-Earths that might have been here. We did actually have that as part of an episode at some point, too. Uh, recently, but um, I like the option of it as a filter. I just don't think that it would represent a strong filter. There's nothing to me that indicates that something like that would be. You know, for those who actually remember when we used to do more great filters and Fourier paradox episodes, we had uh, uh, scales of filters. We'd say you had your lesser filters. Those were things that were basically 50 50 and even solar system. That means your minor filters were only like your one in 10 type of thing, you know, that uh, 90% of people didn't pass that, or 90% of worlds didn't pass that one. Then we had your major filters, which put as one in a thousand, and your great filters, which would be your one million plus kind of events. Um, I could see orbital resonance as a lesser filter or a minor filter. I cannot see it rising level of a major filter. Right? So uh, it might be one of those things that made one in 10 systems habitable as opposed to where they otherwise would be all habitable. But I can't see it as a one million thing, let alone even one, or even one in a thousand. All right. Uh, I was debating between one and two more questions before the break, and I think I'm going to go with two, okay? okay. So uh, we have a super chat from Drew McTeague. Are you planning any more terraforming videos? Um, mm. Drew, by the way, and I always like to point him out whenever he actually has questions on this, he's the first person who co-wrote one of our episodes on the, on the channel. Uh, the Spaceship Compendium back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I was just thinking right there, is, um, the first time I did an episode topic poll was over on our Patreon forum, and we did three of them in a row, and he won the first one and helped out on that episode, and that is one of our more popular episodes as the years have gone by. So uh, I will tell him what I often tell many of our editors, who, uh, who asked this question, if you do an outline for it, or actually write the script, the odds of it actually turning into an episode sometime in the next year go up immensely. Although, uh, yeah, we'll do more terraforming. We'll absolutely do more terraforming. We got that Mars episode coming up next week, next month. Next sometime this... Next week is next month. Yeah. Is it? It is. What is next month's episode? And they're actually up on the screen for anyone who's watching this right now, too. It's just, I, it's I don't... It's getting close yeah. to April Fool's Day. Yeah. We're not doing April Fool's Day episode, though. They were, they were pushing hard for that, but we had an episode right before that, and I just didn't want to try that out this year, so... Um, the other problem is most of our episodes don't actually get watched the day they come out. Uh, you know, so... Usually about one-tenth of the views on the average video were on the day it came out. So a lot of those, like, specific jokes don't work that well. Same reason why we never do a Thanksgiving special, because there's one every year, because it's always on Thursday. And uh, basically, I only do one holiday episode with even holiday. And, uh, you know, it's so... Uh, what was the question? Oh, terraforming. Andrew, yes. I we will absolutely do an episode on that at some point again. And we have one coming up on Marvel's Not That Far From Now. But if you're like outlining one out, I'd be glad to start working on it. So the last question before the break is from Radical Bacon. What's your drink and snack today? Well, now I kind of want it to be bacon. Um, 
Uh, oh, that's true. I've been adding bacon bits like almost every breakfast meal of late. I've been doing omelets a lot of late, so bacon bits add a sort of joy to all things breakfasty. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, the drink of choice today is coffee. A different mug than normal. This is uh, my morning coffee mug. You can't see it rotated a little bit so they can see what a beautiful mug your wife bought for you. Yeah. That is obviously as my wife just dedicated a mug she bought for me. So it is good coffee. Coffee is a hug and a mug. And it is good coffee. And as to my choice of snack for today, I actually had a chocolate chip cookie before I came downstairs. So there we go. And I'm a really big snack off, but I, I, yeah, I stole one of your cookies. Oh. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and go to break on that notice. And all you can go ahead and grab yourselves a drink or snack. We'll see you in a few minutes. So we'll be on break for a few minutes, and it's a great time to grab a drink and a snack and get some more questions into our moderators. Last month we tried a lightning round toward the end to finish up some unanswered questions, and we did manage to get through them all, but some got fairly fast answers and one I wanted to spend a bit more time on was Winton Ashley's question, what do you think are the biggest human barriers to having interplanetary travel for untrained, mentally unscreened masses? i.e. onset of various psychoses in transit, ignorance causing major issues, space sickness, etc. One thing that tends to stand out to me is that a lot of our psychological screening methods for businesses over the years have been less effective than we'd expect at grabbing good talent or filtering out problems waiting to happen, so I'm not certain this is one of those things we can expect to pay us a lot of dividends. We also always want to make sure we are asking the right question. For instance, it would seem the most important trait for space ventures would be enthusiasm for accomplishing them, and you would expect that to be a self-selecting trait, the enthusiasm is implied by volunteering for the venture. However, we need to keep in mind that a family moving to a new colony might only have one member who is really interested in doing so, with the others coming along to maintain household integrity, or it might be that what they're really enthusiastic about is leaving their current situation which is often the reason for folks moving to new colonies, and often the real problems they have are coming with them, even if they think that it was where they were, not who they were, causing the problem. Is someone going to an asteroid for the fun of space travel, or because asteroid mining pays well, or because they think they have a foolproof plan for embezzling gold from that mine? Are they just looking for a place they can't be sued or extradited from? The reality is that while humans tend to have a lot of wander y'all built into us, especially in our youth, not many folks are anxious to move far far away unless they feel the need to leave to survive or prosper, and usually the folks a society is screening as its cream of the crop are not those folks, because folks with tons of skills their society values are often not feeling a need to escape in order to prosper or survive. Oh, you might have tons of talented and amazing individuals inside an oppressive society who need to leave to get ahead, but odds are good that an oppressive society isn't screening for those qualities they have because they are not considered pluses. So the trait many colonists might have is being good at hiding their unpopular talents or inclinations, which is to say, they are good at fooling screening tests. Does this mean screening is pointless? No. Merely that you want to limit yourself to things you can confidently detect, and probably that which is risky for a mission more than beneficial, there are some fairly reliable personality tests for relatively basic personality inventory, like the Big Five Aspect Test for openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism, and IQ tests themselves are decent predictors for certain expectations of performance, 
but mostly you have to find out if someone's going to be good at welding metal plates in a spacesuit by checking how good they are at welding, how physically fit they are, and how prone to being afraid of being in a spacesuit in the void they are, and that can predict success too if they hate their job or suck at it or are terrified of it. Then that's going to have a ton of other secondary effects on their life in space and on their neighbors and teammates. In the end, I don't think we'd expect space to be any different than normal job screening or folks trying to figure out if someone's a good fit for their club or neighborhood or suited to being a soldier or police officer or doctor. Space, in this regard, is likely to be the same as at home and our attempts at screening as fruitful or ineffective as they are here. Again, it was a good question and I felt it needed a little more time than it got in our lightning round last month, though I think we'll try another lightning round this month so don't forget to get your questions into our moderators for the second half of our show. And speaking of that, let's get back to the show and more of your questions. Sorry about that, we all... Uh, I was getting coffee anyway. I uh, was finding those chocolate chip cookies. Yeah, I can't I suggest that. chocolate chip cookies and not let me get a snack. <laughs> and we will do a lightning round again today for questions, so please keep eating those back in there so that we can... Uh, See if we can actually get through another one of those well, again. I think we've, we've had over 50 questions that have been queued for today, and I don't think we've made it through more than half of them yet. So All right, we, well, that's, that's we don't need to do a huge lightning round yet. I'll tell you when we're ready for lightning round. But um, let's start off with a super chat here from Merv Johnson. Is it better to watch you on YouTube or Nebula? Which service is more beneficial to you? Um, Nebula, I actually own part of it, but... Uh, uh, in terms of views, the the answer I'd say well, I actually quote one of my peers that is with the Nebula with us. The answer is both, please. <laughs> <laughs> we're on a whole bunch of platforms, but I see things everywhere they are. But YouTube is still a flagship, and it probably is always going to be, or at least for the indefinite foreseeable future. But I love seeing folks over on Nebula just because I I do like seeing that format continue. It's a it's an experiment that's been incredibly successful thus far. It's the biggest creator owned one out there. But at the same time, it's it's still not our flagship, you know? All right. And Airline Studios says, any thoughts on the fate of traditional space agencies? Um, hmm. One more time. Any thoughts on the fate of traditional space agencies? They'll get bigger and more bureaucratic with time. <laughs> I mean, that's... <laughs> Well, that already happened in some yeah. cases, so <laughs> that doesn't take too much prediction. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't really see them ever going away. You know, it, you, you see something like NASA maybe breaking into multiple different groups, like Noah getting a big chunk of the share and more going to uh, Space Force and other bits going to um, other space agencies that temporarily skip my mind for the moment. Yeah, so. Craig Shoemaker, could you devote an episode to the topic of organized complexity and the principles and laws relating to it? Ah, oh, folks, I recognize that. We just had more of a moment ago, and now it's Craig. Hi, Craig. Um, let's see. Organized complexity and the principles applying to it. I, I think it would kind of depend on if you meant like emergence, emergent theory, something like that, as opposed to just organized. Um, there's a lot underneath that, and actually, let's go with the possibility of yes, and message me more about what you meant, since I think you do actually have my Facebook Messenger. So, thank you, Craig, for a good question. I don't have an answer for you today. <laughs> Gamers Cafe, in Stargate Universe, Destiny does solar lifting. What material would you suspect it is mostly after to power the ship and why? Okay, so Stargate Universe, uh, the last of the good SG-1 series, uh, I was going to say good in the sense it was, I liked the show, but it was 
the franchise died after two seasons of that, unfortunately, and it had kind of been winding down. In that, they had this ancient spaceship built by the ancients that's like 50 or 60 million years old, and when it gets low on fuel in like the second episode or third episode, they'll get low on fuel, it falls into the sun and scoops up plasma and sucks it all up in the engines and it runs on that. Everything about that is, is pretty much wrong in terms of how you would do that for star lifting, but, you know, it, it looks cool. <laughs> and you could actually have, you could have spaceships that would choose to, to kind of dive bomb to catch fuel, right? There are some scenarios where that might be something things that would actually do, but not really that way. Um, what were they actually fishing for out of there? I have no idea. Um, I'm reminded that Star Trek Voyager... Uh, used to say that deuterium was one of the rarest elements, and they were always having problems finding it. Those who know, obviously, deuterium is the second most common isotope of hydrogen, the most abundant atom in the universe. So, science fiction sometimes get these things horribly wrong. I do not know what they were fishing for. Let's assume that it was just deuterium. Jay Wayner, thank you for your super chat. Could thermionic technology be used to hide the heat waste of a megastructure? Or Dyson Sphere swarm in space. Say fermionic? Thermionic. Oh, okay. Um I every time I've encountered a way to try to hide something using some manipulation of thermodynamics, uh, you know, it, it's kinda like when we had those uh there are certain types of materials that be one hundred percent, not ninety nine point nine, but one hundred percent opaque to a given frequency of light. You know, your full legit effects, right? Um, every time I've seen something that was supposed to manipulate the laws of thermodynamics or optics to allow you to really hide something, it usually had some really easy way that you'd be able to detect that that effect was in place. So, I've not really seen how that one would work out in a way that would actually hide these things. Sir Heinz Bond. Hi, Sarah and Isaac. My question would be, Isaac, would you mind if someone is borrowing the Gardner ship's idea for their own storyline? No. Yeah, no, I mean... I'm not actually 100% positive. That's purely mine. I named them that. I love the title. But I, I really doubt I'm the first person who ever came up with that. I probably just optimized into an episode. We have a lot of those. The one reason I don't put my name on a lot of the ideas that are mine, besides the fact I don't really like that style, is I'm never sure they were really all mine. Maybe somebody else came up with them before, right? You are welcome to take that entire name, lock, stock, and bail, except you can't call the ship Unity. If you do that, it cannot be a Gardner ship called Unity. Uh, but other than that, yes. Yeah, you're, you're welcome to, to go ahead and go with that. <laughs> also, please don't call it something like Isaac Arthur, USS Isaac Arthur. Everyone's going to assume that you're naming me after either Isaac Asimov or Arthur C. Clarke. Anyways, <laughs> just <laughs> find a cooler name. Divide by zero, get cake. Hi, everyone. Isaac, if you were to be abducted by aliens tomorrow, what question or conversations would you like to have with them? You know, there was a game called Portal that came out years and years ago that I, I had something called Cake is a Lie that was coming up throughout there because the AI promised people cake. And I used to post that on my birthday all the time. It was a, a, a cake with a number of candles on it that said 26 on it. And the background of the little thing said Cake is a Lie. Um, and so I kind of fixated on that part, especially because last night while we were uh, screwing out on Netflix trying to find something to finish the evening out with, there was a show up there that was about people who make cakes that look like other things. So you can't tell they're cake. Um, so I, uh, that's basically a long way of saying, Sarah, could you repeat the question, please? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you were abducted by aliens tomorrow, would you be having a conversation with them about what kind of cake you wanted? 
Probably yes. <laughs> Would you uh, have a conversation I, with them about anything else? Well, well, yes. For people who know me in real life, the kind of rabbit trails you see going outside the scripts a lot of times, or here, are normal. I, I don't even make much effort to, like, contain them outside of that, so yes. I probably would be asking them about the zones they hate. All right, C.R. Smith. Is it plausible that we are the only life forms in the galaxy thinking about the rare Earth hypothesis? Well, apparently the others are all thinking about cake, so... It's, um, cake no, is I, a rare Earth element. Yeah. I think that... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I think that, uh, I, would, I would say that every civilization that doesn't actually pop up with, you know, signals, when they see how big the universe is, you know, and this was big in literature for, like, the entire cosmic horror genre that has H.P. Lovecraft in it and others, right? They see how, you know, they got this news that says the universe is ancient and it is huge, right? And there's no reason the life wouldn't be elsewhere in it. If those things are true, then there should be other civilizations out there, too, and they presumably would think the exact same thing, unless they had evidence to the contrary, because they got people right next to them always saying hi. I find it hard to believe that anybody who has a Fermi Paradox question has not considered the possibility that they're unique in it, so. Here's a big juicy question from Albert Jackinson. Hi, Albert. <laughs> hi, Isaac. I remember a few years ago in the Quiet Revolutions episode, you described an education system without grades. How would graduation requirements exist in such a system, or would they? God, did I? Um... I mean, you always need some method of actually checking to see how a student's progress is going on. Uh, you know, and not for the purpose of evaluating them with their peers. I, I, that's kind of secondary to me. Most of our evaluation systems, from a pra practical standpoint, are almost useless. Like, a lot of things that Human Resources does to try to figure out who's going to be a good employee or not have turned out to be um, less effective than we would have liked in terms of figuring out who's good at what, right? But you need those evaluation systems to see how you're going to help that student improve because that tells you whether they're good or bad at usually i would say that in a case like that you're seeing which you know at the smallest pixel you can so to speak right what areas are they interested in what areas are they not because you might say oh this kid's not interested in history but it turns out they just don't care much about the revolutionary war you know and that was what they were being taught and it turns out the same was true because their teacher had such the same enthusiasm for a similar topic and it turns out they don't even like that teacher so now you think the person hates history but in reality they love the topic when they find the bit that applies to them, right? Some people just don't care about history when it's always repetitions of this or that war, as opposed to, you know, the history of cake manufacture, which is really <laughs> stuck in my head today now, I know. <laughs> okay, well, if we're going to talk about the history of cake, let's keep in mind that one ancient cake that we don't eat very often anymore is orange sponge cake. Yeah. We still have a piece of our wedding cake, don't cake. we? Yes. Yeah, okay. We eat, we all have anniversaries coming up next month, so our second anniversary. One day um, from yesterday. Yeah. One yeah. month from yesterday. Um, one month from two days from yesterday. I have a season 25th there. That's what I said. It's 27th. Moving on. Pablo Enrique <laughs> Brazil says, You are all amazing. Thank you so much for the great content. And it probably doesn't matter what day it is. He still thinks you're amazing. <laughs> Thank you very much. We, we appreciate that. <laughs> Flora Horbeck. Years ago, there were plans to descend into volcanic tubes in active volcanoes. Do we actually have materials to withstand that amount of heat and pressure? Um, I mean, I don't know what the actual temperature in an active volcano is off the top of my head. I'm guessing it's south of 2000 centigrade, though. And yeah, we have materials that can do that. Quite a few. Um, the hottest ones we can do are about like 5,000. Um, and uh, 
But don't quote me on that. Just go look up what it is for tungsten and, you know, or, or was it tungsten half-light or something like that. But you make something solid out of that that doesn't melt, and then you just run a lot of coolant through it. I mean, a lot of coolant. That is, from a practical standpoint, probably not going to let you go very deep in something like that, but it can be done. Yeah. Excuse me. There's even stars that you could probably... Actually, in some ways, it'd be easier to suspend yourself into the photosphere of a lot of stars, because... You just have to have something highly reflective to keep the light away because those things are much thinner than our own atmosphere, whereas magma's a lot thicker. But before we go that way, don't assume the movie The Core is ever going to likely to happen. That movie was atrocious and uh, amusing sometimes. Ben Prewer, to what extent do you think that catastrophes like asteroid impacts and solar flares contribute to the Fermi Paradox by preventing the rise of complex life and civilizations on planets? Uh, well, we just got talking about total degrees before, and I would guess that that would be either a minor or lesser filter. I just don't think that, in themselves, asteroid impacts are going to be anything that, that happens so often that they make life more or less likely uh, to a point of being like one million for a star system. So maybe a major, but probably not. I guess we're moving the lightning around, are we? Oh, not no, yet? No, not yet. Okay, we'll soon. Got a little time still. I've got, I've got a lot of questions I'm trying to work in before the lightning oh, round. Okay. So we have a super chat from TKG Wildfire. Thank you. What will the future accommodation, I'm sorry, what will future commodities, business sectors, and real estate that space development, I think I misread that one. I think they're asking about commodities, business sectors, and real estate in space development. What do you think will be available? Uh, energy will be the big one. And yes, that's, that's always going to be a big one or something like that. Although that could become one of those ones that's really kind of tiny in a way and say way like fertilizers are very important as a commodity, but really not one of those big market fluctuators. It goes basically with the cost of fuel, which hits everything else too. Uh, so it, it tends to be in the background, but like fertilizer there, you know. Um, any of the volatiles we actually use for growing food probably would be too, because those really are common space or area. Water. Water. And along those lines, we also have a question from Zek Brusk. When a large number of people begin living in space, what kinds of sports do you think could be created playing in zero or low gravity? Could we have something like Kidditch on the moon? Mm -hmm. See our episode Space Sports, which not to be confused with Space Ports, where we looked at a bunch of them for various systems. Some of them were not just in, in zero gravity. A lot of them were on low gravity plants, but uh, or places like Venus, where hang glide. Uh, the one that I love, though, as an idea is orbital ring diving and this is where you would jump off either a space tower or an orbital ring with like a you know a, a, just a, a suit a mask and a parachute and dive into the ocean this is survivable if done correctly and i think that people would absolutely do that i think they would jump off an orbital ring into the ocean <laughs> and me they would survive too all right Niall asks, Isaac, what is your opinion on the ethics of genetically modifying human genes and the dangers of genetic engineering? Um, genetic engineering is actually really dangerous. Uh, I don't have an opinion on, on human genetic engineering specifically, though. To me, if it's ethical to do it on, on like plants or animals in general, then that would imply it's not innately and unethical to do it to humans. However, right, uh, when you screw around with a biosphere or an ecology in certain ways, don't be surprised if you have big, big effects. You know, you do something that suddenly makes this plant much less likely to die, and now you're dealing with something like we got behind us on our farm here, Miscanthus Field, one of the previous occupants that we're going to spend probably a year clearing out because it's so rooted in there and it's not needed the local ecology. Uh, with humans, you can go ahead and place what ecology with sociology too, right? You start playing around with humans even a little bit. A human is just genetically been modified to be 1% more aggressive, right? 
as a whole, that, that can have a huge effect on things. So uh, it is playing with jet fuel, right? Not just playing with gasoline or matches, jet fuel. At the same time, if you want to get to space, you need to use jet fuel. So I don't want to say it's automatically wrong either, right? Just something to be done with caution, discretion, and transparency. <laughs> Gideon Cornfield says, I love your videos. You have helped me to look at the future with more hope. Thank you, Gideon. Mm -hmm. Pat the Popper, a problem with self-growing habitats made of mushrooms in particular is that we might need to eat them. The soup versus safety argument. Would you like to comment? <laughs> I think that's a very good one. I know I think a lot of these habitats would be broken down afterwards. Like the self-growing ones made out of microblocks, for instance, that we looked at this Thursday. No, wait, that episode hasn't come out yet. <laughs> I thought maybe it had. Oh, okay. Sorry. So for people jump ahead, our self-growing habitats thing features something called microblocks that uh, are made out of mushrooms, and there's a big when experiment with that, that here in Cleveland. Out? That one's coming out on April seventh. It'll be April seventh. So uh, it's the one I was last working on. I just have a vision of that. So um, see that episode for details. Stay tuned. Anansi says watching your videos has helped to expand the concepts in my universe. Thank you, Anansi. All right, are you ready for a lightning round? I am. Five-minute lightning round? Yeah. Or so? All right. Uh, we'll see how many of these questions we can pack in in the last five minutes. The tardigrade. Does the limited amount of useful energy in the universe make it a zero-sum game for all civilizations involved? No. Uh, the, whenever you're talking about a limited-sized pie, there's always some way to change that around. In an extreme ultimate sense, whenever you have a finite anything, theoretically, there's going to be a maximum wage you can cut it. But in practice, these kinds of zero-sum games off one variable and not something you could say applies to all the ways you might change it. You get better at miniaturization, you find some way to get other universes, you find other ways to control how quickly you're renewing things, right? Things can change. Don't approach it from a zero-sum game perspective. It might be, but probably don't take it as a given. Now, just a reminder, these lightning round questions are supposed to be 15 to 30 second answers so you can pack in a whole bunch of them. <laughs> all right, thank you, wife. <laughs> and for everybody else, put them in the comments afterwards. I'll try to get them tomorrow. BG101UK. This is the first time I've managed to catch one of these live streams during the event. Enjoying this, thanks. Even if it is a bit difficult to hear with all the noise in the pub. You're very welcome. Have uh, Enjoy your drink. <laughs> David Hudson. Wow, I finally got to a live stream. Love your content. Have watched every episode. That's an easy question to answer. Thank you, David. <laughs> and the cryptic. What sort of trees are you planning to put in that orchard? I've got some apples and cherries in mine. Uh, us too, and that one, uh, we're actually trying a, a couple of each. Sarah would know the list better than me. Sarah, what's in there? Apple, cherry, peach, nectarine, uh, Mulberry, elderberry, not elderberry, mulberry, fig. Mulberries. Well, your mom has some elderberries. Um, so we, we're kind of trying like one to two of everything. Yeah. Spaceman, what do you think about the future AI religions? You know what? I don't know. Uh, what do you mean, like a computer worshiping a god, or people worshiping a computer? I, you know, again, with futures concerned, I usually assume that a lot of these things will happen. So probably the answer to the yes. <laughs> if you think of a variation of it, the answer is probably yes. Igor Briskin, what is your opinion on the future of nuclear salt water rocket engines in industrialization and exploitation of resources? in and out of the solar system, and thank you in advance. Uh, this is the exact opposite, where it's one of those things where it's not that you expect a whole bunch to be simultaneously true, it either gets used a lot or it doesn't. 
I'm very optimistic about the value of nuclear salt water rockets. Whether or not they'll ever actually be the main mainstay that we use is going to depend so much on how we get that initial development of technology. We might say it's way easier just to do like, nuclear power on the moon to make water fuels or aluminum fuels there. So. All right. Floor Horbeck. Have you ever thought about, if you haven't already, doing a live stream with another physicist like Sabine Hassenfelder, Brian Keating, Mikio Kaku, Neil deGrasse Tyson? No. I mean, if I was on their show, but I don't, I don't like to... I have a lot of friends who are in there. Some of those people are folks I know, obviously. I don't really like the idea of trying to answer questions simultaneously to them on my own show. I'd rather maybe do a panel with them sometime, but even then, any of those people you just named, you know, are more enough for people to watch by their own, too, so they don't need me there, right? Vice versa. Don't, you know, big panels full of lots of people who are interesting are less interesting to me than one-on-ones. Yeah. Captain Strune, what do you think of mitosis never occurring as a Fermi paradox filter? Imagine a habitable planet with one single microbe on them. I don't really know how it could be a single-celled microbe across the entire planet uh, as an initial state. I, I really, I think that if it's not getting mitosis in there, then it just doesn't ever really get off the ground and gets replaced the next time something like that pops up. So. And a question here from Leandro. Do you think that we'll ever get to the point of most manufactured goods being made 100% by automated machines? And if so, what vertical will be first and how far into the future? No. You never have a completely automated civilization, right? Because you have things with brains already in play, right? And if you're being replaced by AI, that's not really 100% automated anymore. It just means that the thinking person happens to be a computer of some sort. You have to have something at the human level or above, potentially, to the same difference. That is your ultimate quality control or creative source for that. So if we're not aiming for a completely automated system, you might need that for like off-world mining in a different solar system. But even then, you probably would send an AI too if you could. All right. We have one here from Polynius Smirnovis. Sorry about that. How many years until ultra-low temp processing becomes ubiquitous or will be practical at all? Also, sending best wishes from Lithuania. Thank you. Um, probably for the ultra, ultra low stuff, when we're talking about the land element, pushing that out, belief, you know, to the point where it's having multiple orders of magnitude, better proficiency, like we see in the Civilization of the End Time series, you wouldn't have that until after all the galaxies were gone, because they were always going to ambient temperature of the tile. As to how long for ultra core, in the sense of like running things at like 30 degrees Celsius, something like that, um, I mean, in the next few centuries, if it is something that really is very advantageous and easy to do, long or otherwise. All right. Levi Rivers says, I have a question about the biosphere of a colony. If you do discover something like a prion or an ancient virus, what does quarantine or destruction entail? Hmm. Um, that's tricky. Uh, you only have the one ecosystem if you're living in a dome on a different planet. If you're on an interstellar colony... Uh, you're kind of screwed if you, you know, want to try to actually do the, uh, you know, Andromeda-style flash fry of everything. Uh, others, you have your separated, colonized, you know, space stuff is usually pretty easy to colonize because, I mean, quarantine, because so long as you don't have everything connected with one single dome, you shut the doors and you just go ahead and vaporize what's inside there if you need to. Or you shut off to have a chance to figure out what the problem is. However, I suspect that that's more of an in-theory than in-practice situation because... People react, you know, react slowly for a lot of quarantine stuff. 
and have a chance to spread, I think, between the various separate biospheres. But uh, I don't know. I really don't know. All right. Yeah. Down to the last two here. We have a question from, or a comment rather, from the Dinosaur King 777. Yo, I love your videos. It's cool to hear you talk about and on scientific concepts. Thank you very much, Dinosaur King. And the last question for the day is from Ram Dan. Do you think artificial muscle wings backpack could be a thing someday? Um, yes. Yeah, actually, just because there was the potential to have such a stronger uh, than a normal muscle contraction with something artificial that you might actually have something like an ornithopter like we see in Dune. And there's no reason that couldn't be jetpacked too. If you have that, you know, that power supply that's ultra dense, you know, that lets you walk around with your own, you know, power suit or exoskeletal suit, then yes, I don't see any reason why you couldn't do the flappy wings thing. Although I don't know that's really optimal as opposed to say something like a uh, a jet that just sucked air in out the back with wings on it for uh, lift that blew, you know, heated air out the back. I don't know, that strikes me as an option that might be better, but uh, yeah, I think it could definitely be done. And because it could be done, someone will do it anyway for the same reason the hot air balloon around the planet still, even though there's no reason to do that. Will they use cake for their auto generation? <laughs> cake has many uses. <laughs> All right. If that's all of our questions, we'll go ahead and get signed off for today. Thank you, everybody, so much for joining us. Um, if you have questions that didn't get answered, please leave them in the comment section. I will try to get them either late tonight or tomorrow. And if you are hanging out afterwards and you see questions, please try to answer them, too, if you know the answer in a polite fashion, obviously. Thank you, everybody, for joining us, and we will see you on Thursday. So that will wrap us up for the day. I want to thank everyone for joining us, and again if we didn't get to your question, feel free to post it as a comment below and I'll try to get to it this evening. Also you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord, or our website IsaacArthur.net. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you Thursday.